Thanks for joining us at Mountainside, anywhere. We're praying that God will use this teaching to reveal himself to you in his word. Through it, may you see him more clearly, know him more fully, and trust him more deeply. As always, we are here to serve. Please reach out through mountainside.online if there's a specific way we can come alongside to pray, help, or encourage throughout the week. Let's join Pastor Dave now as he continues our study in the book of Mark. Pastor Lyle mentioned about uh, uh, you're up. A few Saturday nights ago, I was up here talking to John. The countdown ended, and I continued to talk, and my wife sent me a text uh, to remind me that I was on. So we're going to begin tonight with the final night. If you begin today, I just preached last night. This is now the morning. We're going to begin this morning talking about Jesus' final night with his disciples. And over the next two weeks, then, we will work our way to the cross. What would you say to your loved ones if you knew that today was your last day? Uh, back in December of 1997, uh, Ruthie got a phone call from a person who they were becoming friends. They had taken their uh, children to something and had connected, and they were starting to develop a friendship. And the woman called and said, uh, my brother-in-law is uh, very sick in the hospital, and uh, our priest won't go visit him for whatever reason. Would, would your husband go visit him? And Ruthie says, well, you understand, you know, we're Protestants. It's going to be David's answers are going to be different, and yes, that's fine. Um, and so I went and to the hospital, walked in the room, met him, and immediately the doctor comes in. And so I step out in the hall and I wait. The doctor leaves the room and I step in, and uh, Bobby says, well, I just found out I have cancer and it's really bad. And uh, um, so we talked, and I left the the hospital room went back to the to our house and the next day was as I remember was New Year's Eve and I got a phone call and a left message was left on the machine said hey can we get together again and talk I'd like to talk some more so I called him back and said I'll come tonight I'll come I have a an event and after the event I'll drive over to the hospital and so uh, went back and he said I think I'm gonna fight this and just as we were talking, the fireworks went off um, in, the, in Philadelphia, and we could see the fireworks uh, from his hotel room. And he said, I wonder if I'll see the fireworks next year. And I said, well, if you do, I'll be here. We'll watch them together. Um, well, he didn't see the fireworks the next year, and little by little over the, over the coming nine months, he would gradually get worse and then have a setback and every time there was a setback his wife would call and I'd run to wherever they were it was different hospitals it seemed that uh, uh, he was taken to when he would have a significant setback and then September 14th I got a call and said Bobby's dying uh, would you come to the hospital he was in really bad shape so bad he he really couldn't move he had esophageal cancer and so he couldn't even push the button to call for the nurse, and they were doing some tests, and his doctor was coming back that day from vacation, so there was going to be a meeting, and he wanted me to be there. Uh, so the doctor comes in, and Bobby says, Doc, this is not living. I, I can't even move, and he was coughing blood and just all of the awful things that you can imagine. And he says, you know, I've tried really hard. I don't want to I don't want to be a disappointment to you or to my wife. And uh, um, the doctor said, we've done everything we can, everything we know to do. And uh, so Bob was making the choice to stop the medication. Really, the medication at this point was just keeping him alive. Um, it wasn't pushing him towards a cure. So the doctor said to his wife, what are you thinking? And she just fell across the bed uh, saying, I know it's the right thing. I just can't bear the thought of losing him. 
And then he turns to me and says, what do you think? I didn't know when I was driving over there I was going to help somebody decide that this was the time to end the medication. And so as the doctor left, I thought, I, I can't imagine being a doctor and doing that day in and day out. Um, so I stayed with him and his wife for a few minutes, and she says, I, I have to call into work. And I said, I'll, I'll, call, your, I'll call your work. Uh, you guys just be together. And uh, as I was getting ready to leave, uh, she said, there's a couple next door in the room, and he's real sick, and they don't have anybody. Would you go see them? So on my way out, I walked into this other couple. They were like 21, 22, and he had um, sternum cancer. And uh, I got in the car and started driving home. What would I say to my wife on the last day I was alive? And I knew it. What would, we, what would, what would be the words? So I, I drove home, and I walked in, and I started to tell Ruthie about it. And I started to say, I just can't imagine. And I just started to cry. And I cried so hard, I could barely breathe. I went into a the family room where the lights were off and I sat in the family room. I was crying so hard, I scared Ruthie. Um, it just was overwhelming to me to think about. I can add a little humorous thought for the guys in the room. Ruthie asked if, if I wanted her to call a friend to come over and sit with me. And uh, you guys don't do that if you didn't know that. I didn't even want to be with myself. I didn't want Ruthie in the room. I wanted no one around me. Just wait for it to end and go forward. The next day, I got up, drove back to the hospital. Bobby was now unconscious, and we just stood around the bed, his wife, his mother, his brother, his sister-in-law, and me, waiting for him to enter heaven. Um, it's in that in that vein that this last night, Jesus is with his disciples. You know, Judas has already um, made the agreement to betray Jesus. And so it's, it's an important thing, and we see this in a minute. I'll explain. Jesus is even keeping the meeting place of the uh, Last Supper a secret because he needs this evening with his disciples. And so... When, if I could back up a second, when we decided to teach through Mark, we recognized that we really wanted to convey the life of Christ. And so there were times where we would come to an episode where Mark would say something or nothing, and we would bring in the subject from the other Gospels to help round out or flesh out what was happening. So today, when... Uh, Luke, or Mark does not even have anything about the washing of the feet. And where Mark takes five verses to go from the meal to the garden, John has five chapters, 155 verses to five. Now, I don't plan, I hadn't planned on preaching on the five chapters. What time do you have to leave? <laughs> but uh, no, I just want to give you some of the subjects that were in those five, that are in those five chapters because they're precious, precious passages, but they help you to see where they fit in, that these were final word discussions. And so I love the verse 12 where Mark is now setting up this new episode, and it says, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. I love that statement, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Because this was going to be different than any other Passover for 2,500 years. Every year since the Exodus, thousands of lambs would be sacrificed, priests working, and yet this was different in that this was the last one. And this one was different. And Hebrews 10 describes it under the old covenant. The priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifice again 
and again, which can never take away sin. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor of God's right hand. This was the once and for all lamb that would sacrifice himself. He would lay down his life. And this lamb, rather than covering sins and never taking away sins, would take away sins. The Passover lamb. I, I, I love the last couple of weeks how Pastor Lyle brought out this point of the tension between God's plans and Satan's plan. God's plan and the prophecies had that Jesus would die on Passover as the Passover lamb. And yet the high priests had decided that they would wait till, high priests and leaders wait till after Passover because they didn't want the crowd to rise up and try to protect Jesus or, or ruin their reputation or whatever would happen. And so Lyle brought up the idea that uh, in a, maybe rather than trying to kill Jesus, Satan wants to keep him alive. All he's got to do is keep him alive for an extra day, right? If he goes past Passover, then it has destroyed prophecy. And what you see in, these, uh, in, the, in the text of, from the Last Supper to the cross is Jesus very mindful of the fact that prophecies are being fulfilled. You'll hear a few phrases like that. We don't have time today to, to flesh that out. There are all kinds of ways that you can preach thematically through this, this final day. But so Jesus is now getting ready to prepare the Last Supper, prepare for the last evening with his disciples. And the disciples ask him in Mark uh, chapter 14, verse 13, so Jesus, where do you want us, or verse 12, where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? And there's this weird thing that Jesus says, uh, he doesn't say uh, Mark's parents' house. That's where we think the, past, the Last Supper took place in and Mark would have been a young man in his parents' house. But Jesus says, go into town, you'll see a man carrying water, and you may think, well, what if there's multiple men? Well, that was what women did. They carried the water, and to see a man carrying a water pot would be an unusual thing. Follow him, and then tell him the master wants to use your place, and the place will already be prepared. In other words, Jesus had made arrangements, and that he was keeping the location a secret, so that his betrayal could not take place until after the evening. And so we see Jesus arriving. Now, when they arrive in the upper room, this is where Mark goes silent, and John picks up in John 13, um, and John says that the, as they arrived for dinner, the devil had already prompted Judas, uh, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Verse 3 and you can go to the next slide. Verse 3 says, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, that he had come from God, returned to God. This is important. This establishes that as Jesus is standing there in that room, he knew who he was. He knew that he had authority over everything. He knew that he had come from God. He knew that he was going back to God and what does he do? He takes off his robe. He wraps a towel around his waist. And he kneels down in front of each of these 12 men to wash their feet. The tradition in the community in the day was that the lowest person would do that job. Uh, often the youngest person. Uh, we don't really honor things like that in our culture. Our culture um, is not built that way, but when I go to the Philippines, the whole time I'm there, I'm Sir David. Um, and the word Poe is used in, in, in uh, texts. And, and even, even on my birthday uh, this past year, I start getting my birthday uh, wishes 12 hours early because it's my birthday in the Philippines. But it's a sign of respect, uh, Poe David, Sir David. It's because I'm older. 
And uh, that's an important thing in some cultures is when is your birthday and you are, you are advanced. So in this situation, no one is getting up to wash the feet. Think about this. Wouldn't the disciples fight over who could wash Jesus' feet? They, they still don't get it. They're still fighting this night, this last night, over who's the greatest. So Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. And then that famous moment where Peter says, uh, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you can't have any part of me. And Peter says, well, give me a whole bath. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I mean, just your feet need to be washed. You're already clean. Jesus says, you'll understand at some point. And it would appear that this is speaking of fellowship. When we trust Christ as our Savior, we are cleansed. We're washed clean. But as we walk through life day by day, hour by hour, we sin, we fail. And so it is a continual cleansing before the Father as we maintain fellowship. Again, now, get your mind around the image between verse 11 and 12. He has just washed the 12th man's feet. And as he stands up, there is Jesus, Son of God, creator of heaven and earth. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. He was the Savior of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Again, John 1. God in the flesh, he dwelt among us, John 1. He would one day sit on the throne of David and rule the earth, standing before them bare-chested with a wet, muddy towel wrapped around his waist. And that is Christianity. That is what people should think of when they hear the word Christian. Whose feet did he wash? He, he washed uh, the feet of a man who had arranged, already arranged to kill him. He washed the feet of the most arrogant and self-confident one in the group who was going to deny him three times. The final denial would be with curses and oaths it, to prove that this is not the way a follower of Jesus would talk. Two had been lobbying uh, to, for top position in Jesus' kingdom. Even their mom had come to Jesus. The remaining eight would run at the first sight of trouble. He wasn't washing their feet because they were his friends and going to stand by him. Uh, they were, to a, to a man, going to be cowards this night. And so much of our Christian life if we're not careful, is thinking about the things that we don't do. I don't do this and I don't do that. Where really, when Jesus teaches about the life of the believer, it's about the things that we do. We serve. We feed hungry people. We give water to thirsty people. We clothe people. We visit people in the hospital. We visit people in prison. Uh, and doing all of those things without love, 1 Corinthians 13 is nothing, is worthless. And so Jesus is saying, and he says, do you understand what I'm doing? You call me teacher or rabbi and Lord. You're right, that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I give you an example to follow. Do as I've done. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends a message. If we begin to believe that we are important, uh, we are saying we're above Jesus because Jesus was the servant. Now you know these things, and God will bless you in doing them. Verse 18 of Mark 14 is interesting because Jesus is saying, I already know whom I've chosen. In other words, he didn't wash these feet because he didn't know what was going to happen. Judas, the betrayer's feet were washed with the full knowledge. But I tell you this beforehand, verse 19, so that when it happens, you'll believe that I am the Messiah. Now, another way that would be fun to preach through this section is all the times 
that Jesus reassures the disciples because tonight's going to be a crisis, right? The person that Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, you are the Messiah, he's going to die before sunset the next day. It's really the same day in Bible reckoning, um, Saturday night is Sunday morning. Anyway, in the next 24 hours, he's going to die. And they're going to face a crisis, and Jesus is laying down many hints, many statements that are going to reassure them during that time. And verse 18, as they were at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you eating with me here will betray me. And great, greatly distressed, each disciple, each one asked in turn, am I the one? Two things that are amazing about this. One is that none of them suspected Judas, though we learned uh, when we heard about Mary anointing Jesus the, the week before that uh, the writer says that Judas was stealing money from the money bag, but none of them suspected it. In fact, they said, is it? Is it me? I think they'd come to the point to where they knew they couldn't trust themselves to have the right answer. Am I going to deny you? Jesus then says, for the Son of Man must die as the scriptures declared long ago. How terrible it would be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. Now this creates a dilemma in some ways. Um, Judas will suffer for his choice. Now, sometimes, and I've, I actually preached a message once um, on the fact that Judas was not forced to do this. And somebody at the door says, I feel so sorry for Judas because he had to do it. It was like, uh, that's exactly the opposite of what I tried to, tried to say. Be, we, we have this conflict between sovereignty and free choice, and they seem to negate each other. Now, I'm going to make a statement that I don't understand, but I know it to be true. Our free choices carry out the sovereignty of God. Now, I put myself, in, when, as I say that, in the position of my grandson at the, the week after he finished second grade in the car said, I think I now know everything there is to know about science. And uh, I said, well, explain photosynthesis to me. And he's photo what? Uh, you got some things to learn, bud. Um, I don't understand how that works. But Jesus' statement here helps us to understand. He says, woe to be the person who does this. It would have been better had he not been born. If, Jesus, if Judas was forced to do it, then Jesus is placing this not the best thing at the feet of God because Judas was born. So if God brought this one into the earth to where he was going to force him, it just doesn't fit. Judas is being held responsible. Judas will not come before God in the judgment and say, I couldn't help it. Enough of that, but there's much more that could be said. I, I think if we think about this, when we talk about evangelism, when we pray for someone to be saved, we're appealing to God's sovereignty, right? When Paul says, uh, pray for an open door, and yet when we share the gospel, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 says, we beg you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. We're appealing to their, appealing to their will. And so how do we bring those two things even together, though they are part of our daily practice? Asking God to intervene and knowing that we are responsible for, for our choices. So at this point, Judas gets up and leaves. Um, and uh, we now move into the communion, the, the end of the, what we call the Last Supper. And as they were eating, Jesus took some bread, blessed it, broke it into pieces, gave it to the disciples and said, take, this is my body. Took the cup of wine, gave thanks for it and gave it to them and they drank it all. This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured as a sacrifice for many. Uh, just quickly, one reason 
uh, to uh, not accept the idea of transubstantiation, that the bread becomes the body and the blood, the wine becomes the blood, is that Jesus hasn't even died yet. He's, his blood is in his veins, his body is unbroken, and he is, he is using these elements as symbols of this covenant. He says, I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom. And so there's where we get those three elements. We, we take the bread, the broken body, we drink the, the juice, the wine, the uh, blood, and we say we show, confer, we show the Lord's death until he comes. And then they sang a hymn, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. They sang Psalm 118, which is the end of the Hallel. And I, I preached on Psalm 118 uh, last Good Friday, the tw uh, 2023. Um, and it's an amazing psalm to read, to think of the mindset of Jesus as he's singing with these men the psalm that says so much about what he is going to be doing. Let me just read a couple we sing uh, parts of this psalm. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. We sing that song. Uh, the Lord is for me, so I will have no fear what people can do to me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's wonderful to see. Please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, give us success. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. And the psalm ends again with give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. What an amazing psalm. And they go on their way. On their, their way out, the, the interesting thing is, is when, the, when the meal ends and they sing the hymn to entering the garden is, is John 14, 15, 16, and 17. Um, in Mark, Mark just mentions that during this time, Jesus says to Peter that uh, you will betray me before the rooster crows. So on this walk uh, from the supper to the garden, uh, we go to John. And let me just mention some things that are a part of this, this time. One of the most precious uh, statements that Jesus made was Peter asks him, where are you going? And he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. If it were not so, I would have told you I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, the word mansion has been used in the past. We sing a song, I got a mansion just over the hilltop, which is, has the idea of being neighbors with God. But the point of this passage is not a, not a mansion, it is the fact that we will have a room in the house of God because we are a part of his family. We move in with him, so to speak. And the, the scriptures end with this proclamation in, in Revelation 21 and 22 with the fact that Jesus will dwell among his people. We'll live with him, not a, over the hill from him. Thomas then says, we don't know the way. And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Simon says, uh, or I mean Philip says, show us the Father. That'll be enough for, for me or for us. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Shortly after that, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Now remember, he's talking to them in the frame of mind that my friend Bobby talked to his wife, Barbara. I'm leaving. He then speaks about the Holy Spirit, that when he leaves, you're not going to be like orphans. I'm going to send the comforter. I have to leave because if I don't leave, the comforter can't come. Now, I've, I struggled with that growing up. I was thinking, man, I'd much rather hang out with Jesus than the Holy Spirit because you know, I can ask the Holy Spirit questions, but it doesn't necessarily give me answers. And so in my, in my uncertainty or 
thinking how much fun it would be to be a disciple sitting around the fire asking Jesus questions and him responding. The problem is, and the reason Jesus says it's better that I go, is remember when Lazarus died and Mary says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's because Jesus was there and Mary was here and Lazarus was dying here. So when the Spirit comes, God is always here. Now, there is a truth that God is everywhere, but we talk about the manifest presence of God, and when the Holy Spirit comes, the Spirit of God dwells in each believer. So we are never alone. We're never without God. And so Jesus spends a lot of time in this section talking about the Spirit of God coming, and it'll be, he'll be working in the world. And he'll re, important, he'll remind the disciples that he says, you're not going to remember some of the things I said, but the Spirit will help you remember. And I believe that's what we have in the Gospels. It's the Spirit of God reminding them and helping them to, to write down everything. He reminds them that Satan is still the ruler of this world. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in the next two weeks. And then one of the greatest chapters in the Bible is John 15, the vine and the branches. I remember, uh, oh man, 25 years ago, my dad really falling in love with John 15. And so for Christmas, I found online where I could buy a page from famous Bibles, like the uh, Bibles written through the centuries, and where I would buy a page, and on that page was uh, John 15, um, and had it framed for him. It, it, What's the key of John 15? Abide in me, and you'll bear much fruit. Abide in me, you'll have peace. Abide in me, you'll have answered prayer. Abide in me, you'll impact the world. And so Jesus is thinking about the vine and the branches. In this section, he also says, you're no longer slaves, I now call you friends. He also says to love each other. John 16 is where he again talks about the Holy Spirit and answers prayer. And as he comes to the end of his talking with them about the Holy Spirit, again, he reminds them that in this world, you are going to suffer. You're my followers, and the world will hate you, and you're going to suffer. And then the great chapter of John 17, the high priestly prayer. As Jesus first prays for him, prays himself to God, he's speaking to God. Can you imagine being present and hearing Jesus talk to the Father? Ah, oh, what, what an amazing thing. Father, the hours come. Glorify your Son so he can give glory back to you. He says, uh, bring me into glory we shared before the world was formed, and, and go on and so forth. And then... Verses 9 through 19, he prays for the disciples, for these men. And then verse 20, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. If you've come to Christ, John 17, 20 is where Jesus prays for you, for me. I've written in every Bible I've ever owned, and I've owned too many of them probably, um, Jesus prays for me. In his infinite capacity as God, he would have thought of me. God the Father would have said, yes, David's included in that. What an amazing thing to think about. And they arrive at the garden. And so they come to the olive road, and Jesus says, sit still sit here while I go and pray. Now we're back to Mark. So Mark 14, 32. Seems like we've been in chapter 14 for, for more than a month. Jesus is now going to pray. This is the hour of his betrayal. And he takes, takes the, tells the disciples, you stay here. Peter, James, and John, come with me, just like he did with Jairus' house and just like he did the transfiguration. Now listen to this. He became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed to the point of death. 
stay here and keep calm with me. And as he walks away from them, he falls to the ground. He's about to face the treachery of Judas, the desertion, the injustices, the ridicule, the spit, the beatings, crucifixion, but ultimately the wrath of God for all the sins of the world through all history to be poured onto him to be punished. Where he will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you saw Jesus at this moment, wouldn't you be tempted to say, uh, that's going to be okay. I mean, just, you know, just feel better. All things work together for good. The point I want to make is Jesus absolutely knows what's going to happen. And yet we see incredible grief. There are times that we hurt There are times that we cry, even though we know the truth. It doesn't make the loss any less hurtful. The number one question that I've been asked in my pastoral ministry is this. What do I say to my friend when, and you could fill in the blank. And I used to say, uh, pastors don't have a book that they pull off the shelf, what to say when. But I now have an answer. And the answer is probably nothing. Just be there. Or say I love you. Or say I'm here for you. This is not the time to try to fix it. Try to make them feel better. And grief share. And I want to tell you, Tony Tenda is a phenomenal leader in that group. I've been so blessed to go through this Uh, with him this session and um, one of the discussions in week two or three was about uh, the things that people say and it's horrific you would not believe what people say to try to make people feel better I'm not even going to say the things that they say because it's it's when you hear it after the fact it's just very troubling but The conversation also centered on the fact that the motive is to make you feel better. I learned this in ministry really early where a man in our church, his wife died suddenly, and and this was the kind of guy that you just didn't know how he was going to get on with life. He was a simple man, and and his wife was the outgoing, the gregarious one, and what is this man going to do in life? And I went to the funeral, and I just stood next to him the whole night rubbed his back, put my arm around him. I, I, I remember driving there and saying, what do I say to help, help you know, him feel better and uh, to, to fix this or whatever? You know how we think. And months later, he came to me and says, boy, you helped me so much that night. Um, I just so much appreciate. And I'm thinking, I didn't say anything. We used to have a ministry at... Grace Bible Church called Stephen Ministry, and we train people how to come alongside someone in crisis. And it's not to fix them. It's to be their companion. Now, there comes a time to fix it. And sometimes I have said to couples that have had, suffered a horrendous loss or a person that there will come a time where we can talk this through. But you see, the Savior, the Son of God, God himself, God incarnate, is on the ground distressed, grieving to the point of death. And then he prays this. Abba, Father, he cries out. If everything is possible for you, please take this cup of suffering from me. Abba, Father, he's speaking of the relationship that he has with God. Everything's possible with you. He's proclaiming his faith up front that he knows that God can do anything. And he lays out his request. Please take this cup away from me. Uh, That idea of cup is found 
a number of times throughout the Old Testament, the cup of the Lord's fury, the foaming wine of his wrath. Yet, important word, and he lays out his ultimate desire. I want your will to be done, not mine. And so, so much of my life I struggled with, uh, Pastor, would you come over and pray? My, my wife is dying, my child is sick, and all of these kinds of things. And, and I get there, and I'm like, I don't know what God wants to do here. And then I, as I was studying this section of Scripture, this is how we pray. God, please heal this person. But I don't know what you want to do, and I want your will more than anything else. I think when God makes these incredible promises of prayer, it's because our heart's desire should be what God wants. Yeah, I'm going to be disappointed if the person dies. I've shed more tears in my life over losing friends and doing funerals for friends over the years. It's, it, it, it's, it's awful to lose somebody you love. But there's only one thing I want more than that, and that's what God wants, because I know that's best. And then the lonely verse, he walks back and his disciples are sleeping. Can you imagine how awful that would be to be Peter? He takes the three of you to, to in a sense, join him in prayer. He says, watch and pray, falls to the ground. He comes back and you guys are, and they're dozing. And he says, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Boy, I take that to heart because how many times have I failed the Lord just by being lazy? Keep watch and pray so that you will not be given into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. I think, again, this is saying to Peter, if, if you'll be alert, um, your denying me is going to be your choice. He walks away again, and he comes back, prays as he prays before. There rules out this idea that I've heard in the past of just give your request to God, pray once, and that's enough. Um, Jesus is going to pray this prayer three or four times. He comes back, disciples sleep again. And it says a third time he comes back, which means there was a prayer in between that. And he, it seems like he starts to say, well, go on and go to sleep. And he says, nope. Here, here they're coming now. It's time. So get up. The time has come. Let's be going. My betrayer is here. And immediately, even as Jesus said this, one of the 12 disciples arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. Uh, people have estimated three to 600 soldiers. I mean, they don't know what's, it seems like way overkill. It's in a garden and there's 13 people, well, 12 now with Judas gone, but are, are they going to have problems from crowds as they take him back, or what's going to happen? Anyway, imagine how scary this would be. Nighttime, torches, uh, soldiers' equipment making noise, and swords being drawn, clubs. And G Judas had given a prearranged signal, you know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. And then you can take him under guard. As soon as they arrived, Jesus walked, Judas walked up to Jesus, said, Rabbi, and gave him a kiss. Back in the 80s, uh, there was a song by Michael Carton. You go to the next slide. Um, it, the song is called, Why? Why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? Why did he use a kiss to show them it's not what a kiss is for? Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. Only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. Uh, we see this in the Psalms where God is talking about the betrayal of a close friend as David writes of his betrayal by Ahithophel. They grab Jesus and arrest him. This is where Peter draws his sword and start, cuts off the ear of Malchus and Jesus reattaches it. He had a story to tell, right? Matthew 26 puts in this place that Jesus says, put away your sword. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize I could ask the Father for a thousand 
thousands of angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly. You see, Jesus could have said, Father, bring the angels in. Verse 54, but if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? And so there again, Jesus is mindful of the prophecies and making sure that everything is fulfilled, which appears that he does. And at the very end, he says, realizing that all had been fulfilled, he said, it's finished. Jesus confronts the soldiers at this time and says, why would you wait till the middle of the night and come in a garden? I've, I've been out in public all this week, and you could have arrested me any of those times. He knows the answers. Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there among you. And again, Jesus says, but these things have happened to fulfill what the scriptures say about me. And so we see again. Verse 50 of Mark 14, then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. And Jesus is there by himself. Then this really strange two verses. One young man following behind was clothed only in a long linen shirt. When the mob tried, mob tried to gather, grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. It is believed, and it's believed in traditions that go back that this is Mark, the writer of the gospel, that he was not a disciple, but was, became a disciple of Peter. Um, and uh, so he would have been maybe hanging by the door during the Last Supper, following behind as the disciples walked. We don't know for sure, but, but it sure makes sense. Verse 53, they took Jesus to the high priest's home where the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of the religious law had gathered. So why is Jesus going through all of this? Why has scripture been written of all of these things that need to be fulfilled. In Hebrews 12, it says, challenges us to run the race, but it says, for the joy set before him endured the cross. So what was the joy that Jesus saw in the future that caused him to face forward and go through what he's about to go through in the next 24 hours? It's you, me. Look at Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were sinners. You see, you don't have to clean yourself up. You can't clean yourself up. It's while we were sinners Christ died for us. I remember years ago um, having a meeting with a, an unsaved man. Uh, we would meet for breakfast or he'd come to my office and uh, we did it under the, under the idea that he wanted to learn about Bible study and so we studied the Gospel of John. And uh, when he came to the place of recognizing that he needed to trust Christ as a Savior, he grew up in a Greek Orthodox church and, and there's a lot of icons and much is given to the pomp and circumstance of things. And so he said, I, I need to trust Christ. So Easter's next week. So I'm going to wait till Easter Sunday, and I'm going to walk to the front of the church, and when the priest puts the wafer on my tongue, I'm going to ask Jesus into my heart at that moment. Won't that be great? And it's like, well, no. Asking Jesus into your life is the greatest thing. The wafer, the whole thing, it doesn't add anything to it. And he agreed and trusted Christ that day or the next day, called me. Verse 9, since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ. Again, not right by my actions. It's the blood of Christ that makes me right. He will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Jesus is going to the cross to suffer God's condemnation so that I can receive Forgiveness of sins. Now, I've used this probably a hundred times in the years that I've been here. 
but I don't know a better way to do it, and I see people that I don't recognize, so what does it mean to be forgiven? And it means that if there was a file cabinet in heaven with my rap sheet, and a file opens up, and every sin that I've ever committed was in that file. When I come to Christ, God opens up the file cabinet, takes out all of those papers, walks over to the file with Jesus' name on, open it up, and puts it in there, and it goes to the cross. He takes out of Jesus' file the perfect life, and he walks back and puts that in my file. It's been called the great exchange where Jesus took on my sins and gave me his righteousness. It's like he take off sinful clothes, hand it to Jesus. He takes off his righteous clothes and hands it to us. We cease to be a condemned sinner and become a righteous son. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we certainly be saved through the life of his son. We can now rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Boy, what sets us sets the gospel apart from other religions of the world? There's no fear of God. And God is our friend. And the promise at the end of the book, at the end of Revelation, is that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and he will live with us. That's the whole point of this. The joy set before Jesus to endure the cross was that so he could bring us to the place of being friends, even though we were enemies, even though we were sinners. Just let that wash over you. And so as we look over these next three or four weeks of Christ walking to the cross and dying, he's doing it so that you can be his friend, so that I can be his friend. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. I have no words. What can one say to God? to a God who's forgiven and not only forgiven but paid the penalty in order to forgive. As we come to Easter a few weeks away and recognize that Jesus rose from the dead as a promise that we too will rise from the dead, I pray that we'll never lose the wonder of that. We will never... God, I know that sometimes I, I go through a day or even a week without really pausing to fully engage my mind into thinking of how much you love me. And thinking of the fact that I'm your friend. God, help us to never lose the wonder of that. If we lose the wonder, it's because we just don't understand. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.